Hello, listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of Herbert Smith Freehills, The Third Wheel. I'm Tim Stutt, partner in our Sydney office and Australian lead for ESG, and I'm joined by Mel Debenham, ESG co-conspirator and partner in our Perth office. For those listening to these episodes sequentially, you'll know that we expected a heavy climate focus given COP26 this month. However, given the Australian Reconciliation Convention is just around the corner, we couldn't resist inviting our next guest to be our expert third wheel for this edition. We are joined by Brooke Massender, partner in our Sydney office and global head of pro bono and citizenship at Herbert Smith Freehills. We're delighted to be joined by Brooke, given her particular expertise in access to justice and working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. Brooke, I know you've been listening into these sessions, but we like to start each edition with a personal reflection. So could you please tell us why is ESG important to you personally? Absolutely. Hi, Tim. Hi, Mel, and thanks for having me along. Um, I guess before we get to ESG, I might take a step back and explain to listeners a little bit about pro bono, because it has different meanings for different people, much like ESG itself. So pro bono comes from the Latin phrase pro bono publico, which means in the public interest or for the public good. So in law firms, it generally means the provision of legal services for free, basically at no cost whatsoever, with no expectation of any reciprocal benefit. It has its origins in the professional responsibility of lawyers and the fact that we owe a duty to the administration of justice, to our court, to the court and to our clients over and above any business considerations. So it's a very distinct idea and quite different from corporate responsibility, shared value or corporate sponsorships, for example. We literally give our services for free to the people in society with greatest unmet legal need and greatest vulnerability. Our firm's been doing that for over 100 years and particularly in a sort of organised and strategic way for the last 20 years. So how does this connect in with ESG? We're operating now in a very different world to the one when pro bono started. And I think it's a really interesting inflection point for pro bono and social impact practitioners in particular. Over the past decade or so, we've seen a, a really steady transition from a very siloed world in respect of who takes responsibility for social justice. We used to have these very distinct actors of the government, the corporate sector, the charity and NGO sector, which was often called the third sector or the philanthropic sector. And what we've seen is that the distinctions within those actors has diminished really significantly over time. We've had governments outsourcing contracts to NGOs, social impact bonds, impact investing, corporate voices on social issues. The, the membranes between those players have become more porous and more sort of permeable. And we've got this really pluralistic kind of context in which social change happens. So I think optimistically for me, ESG is in a way at, at its um, highest potential. It's the maturity of that phenomenon as we see businesses thinking about how to bake themes of environmental impact, social impact uh, into their standard operating models. And I know you've been speaking to your guests about, you know, the three ESG pillars, the E, the S and the G. And Tim, I haven't forgotten the G um, in, in my last reference. I think I don't see them as particularly separate pillars at all. I see them as totally 
multifaceted and interconnected. And perhaps the businesses that we see really pushing the dial on ESG are the ones that are looking at the E and the S through the lens of G and integrating it in a holistic way into their business governance. So I think bringing pro bono and ESG together, if anything, it really allows practitioners like me a moment of smug satisfaction that the things that I've been thinking about for a long time now are finally on the mainstream business agenda. <laughs> well, this, I think. <laughs> uh, I love that, Brooke. And um, I think, you know, Tim and I will agree with you uh, in, yes, they're pillars, but it's how um, how the EVS and the G connect together and the space in between that is becoming more and more important. Um, and Tim and I have been musing about the evolution of ESG and Brooke in particular, whether it's a journey or a final destination. Now, I know you've been practising in the social impact space for such a long time, so we'd really love you to share your thoughts. Is ESG a journey or a destination? It's a great question and I love an analogy. I'm a very visual person, so I'm, I've really been enjoying this, um, this discussion in the, in the context of your podcasts. If I'm thinking about the operating context for most organisations at the moment, our, our standard operating environment is more complex than it's ever been. Whether we are looking at the sort of existential challenges of climate change or the global pandemic, whether we're thinking about the pace of change with the fourth industrial revolution, I think the only thing that is clear is the lack of clarity. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're in uncharted territory. And so if I'm embarking on uncharted territory, something new, something unknown, let's think of it visually as a dense forest, I would want some kind of guide. I would want some kind of map, some kind of sat-nav, and I think this is where ESG can come in as a kind of toolkit of sorts. Whether you think about it from the perspective of something like a human rights due diligence process or environmental impact process, or let's say a reconciliation action plan and the impacts you might be having on First Nations country and communities, there are lots of different impacts you can have and there are lots of different paths you can take and directions you can go in. And really, the, the ones that are most important for your organization will only become apparent to you if you have a level of self-awareness and understanding of your own purpose as an organization. So I think along with that toolkit, for want of a better expression, that, that ESG can represent, there also needs to be a deep level of reflection. Um, and self-awareness. Why is an organization on the journey in the first place? What is its purpose? What is the level of motivation for success? Is somebody forcing you into that unknown forest? What are the dangers? Are we scared or are we excited? Who's with you? It might sound really, really esoteric, but I think self-awareness is a really important starting point for any individual or any organization that's going to embark on really deep ESG thinking. So I think for me, I'm going to land on ESG as a roadmap that makes the journey more meaningful and the destination, whatever that might look like on a sector by sector basis, more likely to be reached. 
Thanks, Brooke. Um, what a great answer. Um, much better than than my musings and Tim's musings on the topic, I think. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned ESG being at an inflection point and that things are more complex than ever. And I think um, I agree with that. And, and that's certainly driving a really significant amount of media coverage and interest in all things ESG, not necessarily um, with that level of self-reflection that you refer to, but, but certainly there's a lot of buzz. Um, and I know you'll share my views that social and community engagement performance, none of this is new. Um, there must be some cynicism um, from some uh, parts of, of the community that this is just sustainability or corporate social responsibility by another name. So, Brooke, I wanted to ask, is it different this time around? And what are you hearing from your clients and industry stakeholders? It's a great question. And in many ways, it is the question for ESG. Will we have um, translation from theory into practice? And let's start with the theory. I think there's certainly been a shift in narrative. Um, when we would have all gone through law school, we were working to the sort of 1970s Milton Friedman definition of corporate purpose being the maximization of shareholder value. And we've certainly had that definition updated, not least by a couple of hundred CEOs of US businesses at the Business Roundtable back in 2019. So on paper, at least, it should be the case that gone are the days where you can have potentially negative societal impacts through your business operations in pursuit of profit. And on the other hand, a so-called sort of corporate philanthropy or corporate responsibility effort that's somehow offsetting or, or acting as a purported counterpoint to those um, business impacts. So if we're not, if we're no longer balancing, let's call it corporate irresponsibility with corporate responsibility, what are we doing? Potentially, at least, we're rewiring businesses with a focus on systemic change. But the proof's in the pudding. So what do we actually mean by that? And what are some good examples of where we're seeing that happen? And I'm going to take a few examples from the reconciliation context. As you mentioned earlier, that's a, a space that myself and the team operate in a lot um, in conjunction with our First Nations partners and colleagues. So there's some really interesting examples of business-driven approaches to social change, whether that be from, let's say, the insurance sector, looking at a topic like justice reinvestment and how you can reduce interaction with the criminal justice system in a way that supports stronger communities. So it's not Selling insurance on the one hand and supporting an initiative on the other hand, it's bringing the social impact in through the standard business operating model. Similarly, in the construction sector, we've got client organisations of ours looking at First Nations design principles and inclusion in thinking about placemaking and how you build community. Um, another good example in the resources sector would be looking at the relationships and the impacts that some of our clients have on traditional owner groups and communities through the prism of voice, treaty and truth. So there's certainly lots of deeper thinking happening and some, I think, definitely some green shoots of change in terms of building ESG in at a more systemic level. Um, but I think it's early days to call it as um, 
a radical shift at this point. What I do think is interesting, though, and you've alluded to this on um, in some of your other episodes, is that there is there is more of a stick now, not just a carrot, but more of a stick now than there's ever been in terms of the kinds of um, legal actions we're seeing brought around greenwashing and the risk of having the words in the narrative and not backing it up with action. Yeah. And I think um, that risk when it comes to community and Indigenous stakeholders um, is a real is a real one as well. Um, maybe to stick on the topic of reconciliation for a little longer um, and your reference to the deep thinking that you're seeing occurring in parts uh, within sectors and, and parts of our community, um, I'm hoping perhaps an opportunity for some more deep thinking will be through the Australian Reconciliation Convention, which Tim mentioned is happening this month. Are you attending, Brooke? Absolutely. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. The convention is going to bring together some of the most experienced and impressive First Nations leaders and thinkers that we're, you know, lucky to to listen to and learn from. Um, so we're really excited. It's a it's a fairly unique opportunity to reflect back on the sort of the, the 20 years of the reconciliation movement to date. Um, and I guess equally as important to project forward to the next 20 years and what that has to look like. When I think back 20 years, that literally takes me to when I arrived in Australia as a backpacker and I was hearing expressions like stolen generations, stolen wages, traditional owners for the very first time. And I remember being... Um, quite shocked that as I had this sort of thirst for understanding and knowledge, it was met with um, often a brick wall in terms of my hunt for further information and better understanding. And I guess what I've what I've realized over time is that the the lack of knowledge that I experienced 20 years ago didn't necessarily equate to a lack of interest. And I think what we've seen with the reconciliation movement, notwithstanding some legitimate cynicism around raps, which which I'll come back to, is that I think undeniably there's now an increased level of knowledge, understanding and cultural competency as organisations have brought their kind of whole of business thinking to the reconciliation space and, and really started to use lots of different levers from employment to procurement not just the sort of the usual suspects of pro bono and community engagement. Um, I think what gives me the greatest optimism in terms of what's changed is the increased representation and inclusion of First Nations voices. And I think it was um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg that says, you know, women should be anywhere where decisions are being made. And, and I would add to that that First Nations voices should be heard anywhere in Australia where decisions are being made, whether that's the constitution, the parliament, the workplace, the community, everywhere. Um, and what I think really gives me energy and hope in our work is particularly, you know, alumni from some of um, the programs that we partner with who are now in our organisation, in community legal centres, in corporates, in legal aid, in the ALS, holding their space and holding their own and changing the operating context of those organisations. So there's still a huge amount more work to do in terms of representation, but I, but I do see that changing. I think, in fairness, though, we've also got to reflect on what hasn't changed. And um, many of the 
achievements of RAPS and the reconciliation movement are referenced through the lens of the RAP organisation itself, whether that's a, a corporate, a school or a, a government department. It's often a quantitative assessment of things that have been done, inputs, not outputs. And despite the undeniable effort and investment um, by reference to those internal metrics, not enough has changed in the real world. With the exception of some of the education metrics, um, most of the previous and now the revised close the gap metrics are still woefully um, underperforming. And so if you, if you take an issue like Aboriginal justice, for example, the levels of incarceration, the impacts of deaths in custody are still wholly inadequately resourced and addressed. Where's the outrage? Where's the response? Um, I, I sometimes feel like we've barely scratched the surface. And for me, that's what really needs to motivate and direct the next 20 years. Those are really interesting um, observations and those statistics. I completely agree, Brooke. Um, and, and it's that it's that age-old example of um, needing to walk the walk as well as talking the talk. And I think um, there's probably, Tim, a bit of a lesson here for sustainability reporting more generally. You know, RAPs have been around for quite some time now um, with a greater focus on um, on real change um, that is being delivered as opposed to actions um, that can be ticked off as having been delivered without actually making that meaningful impact. So I don't, I don't know whether that resonated with you, Tim, in thinking about the work you're doing on um, sustainability reports. Absolutely. I think um, a lot of the challenge with sustainability reporting is moving beyond some of um, some of the things which are easy to quantify and moving to the things which are genuinely impactful. Uh, and often the way sustainability reporting has historically worked in large corporates is it may be um, not necessarily approached as a whole of company issue, as, as Brooke mentioned, and actually trying to bring together a broader group of stakeholders with better representation is key to informing the quality of what is being looked at in terms of the metrics, but also what is being reported um, and shared with, with the broader community as well. Brooke, the, um, the theme for the upcoming Australian Reconciliation Convention is From Safe to Brave, which is something which really caught Mel and my eyes because we've recently been through a process of doing ESG client roundtables with a number of different general counsel and um, in-house legal team members at a number of our, our, our clients. And there was a genuine appetite to be moving from compliance type issues to getting to that impact and, and better better considering that impact and factoring that into decision making. I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts around practical tips for for making that step change. Sure. And look, I think we've all sort of um, alluded to probably the big one already, which is to shift the frame of reference. And it's not an easy thing to do. It's it is far easier, as as you've both already mentioned, to quantify input 
than to um, make a qualitative assessment of what's changed in the real world. But if we don't try and do it, we'll never get there. So as we're looking to the development of our next reconciliation action plan, we're having to ask the question, what has changed in the communities that we're seeking to support? We have to completely rethink our wrap through the lens of First Nations clients, colleagues and communities. It will produce a radically different document to what we've seen before. And it will be uncomfortable for many people because there will be ambiguity and there will be uncertainty as we try something that's harder and be prepared to fail in that attempt as opposed to keep picking low-hanging fruit. Um, let me try and put a little bit of specific um, context on that for you. For example, many organisations are thinking about um, employment initiatives and increasing First Nations representation in their organisations quite rightly. And often the question might be asked, is this person a good fit for our organisation? And it's completely the wrong question because the question needs to be, is our organisation fit and safe for this First Nations colleague? Now, that's a much bigger piece of work that involves a review of policies, processes and procedures through a lens that we have not necessarily looked through before. So we can either count the extra person that we bring on board or we can do that work and make sure that it's a safe environment for any person that we bring on board. Um, so I think shifting the frame of reference is really important. Another thing I would really encourage um, organisations to think about is their own preparedness and appetite to lead. What you tend to see a fair bit is an analysis of what else is happening in the sector, who's doing what, and a kind of pitch to the middle almost. And what that means in real terms is that we only ever progress at the pace of the least brave organisation. So a preparedness to, to lead is going to be critical and a form of collaboration will be critical to pushing everybody that bit further, that bit faster. I think another um, aspect that I would draw out is that all of this work, all of this thinking is ultimately human centric and organisations at the end of the day are people and we should never underestimate people as agents of change. So often it's that one person in procurement or it's that one person in recruitment or it's that one person in a particular business unit that says, I want to do things differently and takes it to management and shows management how it can be done differently. And it's it's okay to be the thorn in your organization's side at times because real change is uncomfortable and values-based leadership requires courage. So I would encourage people to... Um, continue to ask the questions and do things differently and then sell it into your organisation as a, as a success. I think finally, um, and this is a little bit sort of existential, but we do, we sort of live in a society where there's a tendency to accumulate wealth and then give generously when you're old or perhaps even dead. Um, and it's time that we build ESG thinking and the ESG mindset into the way we define success in business and in life 
not as an afterthought or a side thought. Thank you, Brooke. Um, what a way to end a really powerful, powerful discussion. Um, you've inspired me to get comfortable with the discomfort um, and be prepared to fail, but also to lead, um, not just from an organisational perspective, but as an individual. So thank you very much for your time and your observations. Um, a change of pace now. Um, regular listeners will know that Tim and I like to close with an interesting fact in the world of ESG or myth or acronym busting. Um, and this time we've dug up something really interesting in the press, picking up on a thread of our previous factoids um, being innovation. Decarbonisation and also dealing with greenhouse gas that's in the atmosphere is a hot topic. We're seeing a lot of focus on carbon capture, utilisation and storage in this regard um, and how important it is to get CCUS or CCS working at scale to the 1.5 degree pathway. But Tim, what if the key was more whales in the ocean? Blue carbon is not new. Um, being a process for the removal of carbon from the Earth's atmosphere by oceanic or coastal ecosystems. With over 70% of the Earth's surface being oceans, blue carbon has great potential, but more research is required. Now, the latest proposal comes from Australian entrepreneur Mark Carnegie and British climate expert Sir David King. Both are calling for island nations to take part in an experiment funded with a million dollars of direct support. The plan is to essentially fertilise the ocean to stimulate the growth of sorry, phytoplankton. These are tiny creatures critical to ocean ecosystems and they absorb carbon and produce oxygen. Phytoplankton are biomass and by increasing phytoplankton in our oceans, CO2 is removed from the atmosphere via photosynthesis. Plankton are also an important food source, so the experiment would lead to more fish and ultimately more whales. Um, the thinking is kick-starting a self-sustaining cycle that would increase the carbon capture capacity of the sea. It's estimated that each whale absorbs around 33 tonnes of CO2, which is buried at the bottom of the ocean when they die. Um, so not individually significant, but collectively, perhaps this could be a real game changer. Island nations are encouraged to participate in the program to also experience immediate benefits such as growth in fish stocks and biodiversity, um, the potential for new fisheries and ultimately assisting in mitigating global climate change. Now, fertilising the ocean is not without some controversy because of interference with what is often a delicate ecological balance. However, the experiment is a step in better understanding the potential of blue carbon and its benefits as well as the risks. So I encourage you all to check it out. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks again for listening in. Tim and I look forward to you joining us next time for another dive into the world of ESG. But bye for now. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. 
For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.